Let me invite you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 28. We are continuing about an 18-month series in the first uh, book in Scripture. This morning we're going to be looking at about 12 verses out of that 28th chapter. Um, I don't know if you're like me, but when I get involved with a conversation, uh, sometimes I'm not really listening so much to what the other person is saying as much as I'm thinking about what I'm going to say next. Uh, whether it's just a casual conversation or, or even a, a debate on a variety of ideas, uh, I tend to not listen very well. I'd listen better when I'm observing a couple of other people in conversation. Uh, if I'm watching Cindy in, engage with one of our kids or our siblings, uh, the kids in our house engage with one another or, uh, or friends in the office, when they're uh, bantering back and forth, I tend to listen and watch and see what I can learn from that exchange. Uh, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at exchange uh, between God and between Jacob and see what we can, we can learn for ourselves. Uh, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a friend who sent me an exchange between two different people, and it's just uh, it's a question and it's an answer. It's very short, so I'm going to read it for you. Uh, Marilyn uh, Sewell is an uh, Episcopal uh, minister who was uh, doing an interview with a guy named Christopher Hitchens. Now, if you know Christopher Hitchens by uh, reputation, or maybe you heard him, he actually was here doing a debate in St. Louis about a year, I think about a year and three months ago. Uh, he's uh, an avowed atheist, and uh, he makes, uh, he makes uh, that kind of his life position, and he travels the globe literally debating Christians back and forth on uh, the question of God. And so Marilyn Sewell, who is a, I said she was Episcopal, excuse me, she's a Unitarian minister, is doing an interview with him, and she asks him this question. She says, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I do not take the stories of Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, which is that Jesus died for our sins. Uh, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion. So that's her question. Here's how Hitchens answered. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you really are not in any meaningful sense of the word a Christian. I find that exchange very interesting for, uh, for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is that, uh, is that uh, Sewell formed her question as such with the assumption uh, that Christianity's parameters were very, very wide and was left really up to the individual to decide uh, to determine what it meant to be a believer. And Hitchens, who's an atheist, uh, had a, the biblical view of salvation. Now, he doesn't embrace it. He rejects it out of hand, but he recognizes it when he sees it. And I would suggest that that exchange, as a casual observer, I would say I learned something about both of those people. Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at two individuals. We're going to look at God, and we're going to look at Jacob, and we're going to look at their interaction with one another, and we're going to try to discern what we can learn about both of them. What do we learn from this passage of Scripture about the Lord God Almighty? What does He reveal to us about His character, about who He is, and about what His intentions are for mankind? That's a relatively important question. We're also going to look at Jacob and how his representation of, of mankind at that moment, he, he's a man's representative before God, what that says not only about Jacob's character, because at the end of the day we're not here to just observe, we're here to learn and apply for ourselves. What does Jacob's interaction with God teach us not only about him, but what does it say about me? What does it say about you? Maybe it speaks to some of the inclinations of our own hearts. And if we listen and look at this a conversation back and forth, this dialogue, maybe we can observe some things to apply to our lives 
uh, in a way that would help us grow and be strengthened in our relationship with God. So with that in mind, in Genesis 28, we're going to start at verse 10, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter, which is about 12 verses. Uh, follow along your Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen, the, the passages before us. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Maybe you've heard of Jacob's ladder before. You've sung that song. This is the passage of Scripture where we, where we find this, uh, this uh, picture. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring." Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel by the name of the city was Lutz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in the way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we uh, pause to pray at this time of the service every Sunday because we need to remember uh, that it is God who is our teacher. That is your Holy Spirit coupled with your word that speaks truth into our lives. It helps us understand, put into context our experience. Father, we sit this morning under the authority of Scripture, not the authority of man, not the philosophy of man, but under your divine, holy, and perfect word that does not ebb and flow, that does not change with the seasons, but remains constant forever because you are constant. Your character is the same. Lord, our, our character, our, our attitudes, our behaviors can, can change over the years. In fact, we can change uh, in a moment depending on the crowd that we're with. We can be like a chameleon, uh, just seeking to blend in with, with whomever we uh, happen to be with at that moment. Father, your, your uh, word can ebb and flow in our hearts. We can take it seriously one moment and the next moment we can completely reject it out of hand. So Lord, it is not what man has to say this morning that's of any importance. Our, our hearts are desperately wicked. We don't even have the capacity to know our own hearts fully, your word tells us. But before you, our thoughts and our hearts and our minds are laid bare. 
And it is there where your scripture can do its work. And it is that for which we pray this morning. That you would come, that you would teach us. That you would instruct us, that you would correct us, that you would encourage us. Lord, whatever you want to do in each person's heart this morning. Father, you know the people in this room that, that are walking with you and trusting in you and living in faith. And those that aren't and people that are somewhere in between those two. Father, you know the deepest secrets of our minds and our hearts that nobody else knows. You see us for who we are. And it is in that framework, Father, that we long to hear your truth, to understand how to apply it to our lives. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would forgive my sin, that you would not allow me to stand in the way of what you want us to know this morning, that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, Before we jump into this conversation, I want to give you a quick contextual background. I want to let you know kind of where we are in in the experience and the life of Jacob. Because if if we don't get that, we won't quite get uh, the importance of this conversation. Uh, The first thing you need to understand is that Jacob has received the blessing for which he longed. Jacob, uh, since he was a young man, was taught that he was going to actually be uh, the one who was going to receive the blessing, that he was going to be uh, the one through whom the chosen promise would flow. But if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you also know that Jacob uh, has been conniving and scheming to get his hands on that promise. He wasn't uh, able to just stand back and say, okay, Lord, I trust that that's what you're going to do. I believe in your promises, so I will simply wait until you work this out. Jacob decided he needed to take matters into his own hand And on two different occasions, he cheats and he lies to his brother and he steals what's called the birthright or the, or the blessing. Uh, and at this moment of his life, he's now received, uh, the greatest longing of his heart. I want to go back to verses three and four for just a minute. Uh, we didn't read those this morning, but this is part of the context. Isaac is speaking to Jacob. Uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, is offering this message to him before he leaves his home. And he says, God Almighty bless you, make you fruitful. And multiply you so that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to put you and your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojourning that God gave to Abraham. So Isaac repeats the blessing that God repeated to him and that God initially gave to his father Isaac. So it's now come down to the third generation. And Jacob has that for which he has longed. Uh, it is the coveted blessing. He, he is simply consumed with the idea of having this. Maybe you've, you've uh, read the, the books, The Lord of the Rings, or you've seen the movie, uh, where at the end of the movie, Gollum gets the ring, and he, he finally has his precious back in his possession, and he's dancing joyfully with glee, and he's, he's simply obsessed with the fact that he's now gotten this thing back to him that's so important. And, and you could put Jacob kind of in that, in that limelight. Jacob has that for which he has longed but he's also at the lowest point in his life. Look at verse 10, which was the first verse we read. Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. Jacob is fleeing for his life. Jacob has cheated his brother out of the birthright, and his brother has sworn that as soon as their father passes away and the time of mourning is over, Jacob has sworn, I'm going to kill my brother. In fact, when, when Jacob's mom, Rebecca, hears this news, she calls Jacob in and says, your brother is consoling himself. Your brother is comforting himself with the thought of murdering you. So you need to get out of here. So here's Jacob, who now you could argue is one of the richest men in that region. He has the blessing of God, and yet he's running for his life. He's fleeing Esau's vengeance. He is completely and utterly alone. 
If you go back and you remember one of the most early introductory statements about Jacob the man, it says that he was a man who dwelled in the tents. That was the way of saying that Jacob was a social guy. Jacob liked the banter. He liked the interaction. He liked the community. He liked uh, the, the, you know, the human give and take of life. Jacob was not the kind of guy that enjoyed solitude. Jacob was not the kind of guy that liked it real peaceful and quiet. He liked to mix it up. He liked to, to talk philosophy and, and engage with other people on a, on a broad basis all of the time. Jacob, Jacob was a very personable kind of guy in his best moments. Uh, every once in a while, I'll say to Cindy, whose, whose family originally is um, a bunch of farmers from southwest Minnesota, i say, you know, maybe, Cindy, we should just move to the farm. We ought to just move to the farm and just wake up in the morning and hear the birds singing and the fresh air. And she's like, you would, you would like that for about two days, and then you would absolutely drive me out of my mind. <laughs> That's a bad idea, Tom, because you need to be around people. That's part of what gets you fired up and gets you excited. We're going to go and be on a farm where it's you and me? I don't think so. And you know what? She's, she's right, God bless her. She's exactly right. And here's, here's Jacob, a, a guy of the people. He's all by himself. And he's all by himself because of his own doing. Jacob has made a mess of his life. He's destroyed his family relationships. And although his father has given him the blessing, he can't hold on to it. And so we find him in a place where he's finally gotten what he wants, but he can't really gain the inheritance. His conniving has made a complete mess of things. And so in this emotional and spiritual and physical exhaustion, he falls asleep with a rock for a pillow. So now that's the context in which this, this uh, interaction takes place. I want to I wanna look at God's interaction first with Jacob and then Jacob's reaction to that. Uh, first look at verses 12 and 13 where God paints this picture of, of power and proximity. As he dreamed, behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. I said, God paints a picture of proximity and of power. This ladder simply represents the connection between heaven and earth. It's a way of, of, of the scripture saying that the spiritual is not alienated from the physical. They're not separate and distinct, but they actually have common ground. And the ladder shows that, that heaven is connected to earth in a very real way. This ladder, no, is not empty. The angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The angels of God demonstrate that the Lord is not just connected to the world, not just that heaven is connected to earth, but that heaven is actually involved in influencing the events of this world, that God is not just connected and says, you know, yeah, there is a pathway, but nobody's on the pathway. It's not what it says. What God represents to Jacob is that he is very connected to this world and his servants are active in doing his bidding. But also notice how this, this picture that God paints uh, culminates. And behold, verse 13, the Lord stood above it. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob stands above this ladder. He is in control. It is his will that is being carried out. There isn't anything that happens outside of his sovereign direction. God is giving the angels their marching orders as they come and go. God is exerting his sovereign rule and his sovereign reign over the earth. Jacob didn't stumble upon this place any more than it was happenstance that you arrived at church this morning. 
It might have been in your free will of thinking that you decided to get up and come to church, but God has you in a very specific place. I, I don't know why he brought you to church this morning. I'm not sure what he's going to do in your life, but I'm confident of the fact that he is doing something in your heart, whether you even acknowledge that he exists or not, because God is the one who stands above the ladder. The song is Jacob's Ladder, right? This isn't Jacob's Ladder. This is the ladder of God Almighty, and it's a picture of God's sovereign rule and reign. Jacob isn't having this dream because he had anchovies on his pizza right before he fell asleep. He's not having a strange dream because of something he ate. Rather, God is showing him his character. The Lord of heaven and earth is ruling and reigning both. Now, if you're Jacob and you're a conniver and you're a cheat and you're a thief, how encouraged are you by the fact that God is in charge? And that God is ruling and reigning. That, that may be a bit of a double-edged sword. So the, the question is not so much that God is, is sovereign or that God is all-powerful or that God is all-knowing. The question really is what's God going to do with the information? What's God going to do with the information he has on you? What's God going to do with the information he has on me? You didn't see everything I did this week. You don't know every thought that's gone through my mind. You don't know the, the, the words that I've spoken this week that maybe were words that were spoken in anger or defensiveness. You haven't been around me 24-7, but God has. He knows even the things that I didn't say to Cindy that were just simply in my heart. What's he going to do with the information? What's God going to do with your information? What's he going to do with Jacob's information? Well, God not only paints a picture, but he speaks a word. Look at the rest of verse 13 through verse 15. And God says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God does speak a word out of his sovereign power to Jacob, but it's a word of grace. He's saying to Jacob, you may feel cut off. You may feel alone. You may be miserable because you are, in fact, a cheat, but I am with you. The promise that I gave to Abraham, your grandfather, that he passed on and that I gave to your father, it now comes to you, Jacob. You do possess the inheritance that I'm going to give you because it is on my word. Jacob the cheat hasn't made God part of his life, and now he encounters grace. He doesn't deserve it. He certainly isn't looking for it. He's running away from, from the, the punishment for the crime that he's committed. But this word and this picture show that God is making the first move. They reveal God's commitment to his plan of redemption and to his attitude towards sinners, which is an attitude of compassion. Uh, the theologian Kent Hughes has written on this passage, and I'll, I want to read for you just a couple of sentences out of his commentary. I think he hits the nail on the head. Jacob, the conniving believer who was outcast and alone due to his own sin, who merited nothing from God, was met by God in his misery and with un, an unparalleled revelation of God's care and assurance for the future. Jacob was not seeking God. He was fleeing the consequences of his deception. He was not expecting grace, but grace was unleashed upon his soul. 
and with not even a word of reproach. What Hughes is pointing to, what I find fascinating, is not even so much of what God said, it's what God didn't say to Jacob. God didn't say to Jacob, which I, I kind of would expect him to say, okay, Jacob, the, the, the plan of redemption is moving forward. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that my will happens. But boy, oh boy, have you really just botched this deal. Why didn't you believe what I tell you? I, I'm expecting God to reprove Jacob. Jacob deserves that reproof. Jacob has earned that by his deception. And yet God is merciful. God is gracious. The news that God is all-powerful and, and fully engaged with mankind isn't reassuring in and of itself. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, I got, I got pulled over one time going down Kirkwood Road. I was coming back with a buddy of mine from a Cardinals baseball game. Middle of the summer, we're driving down Kirkwood Road, and we pass a police car that's pulled into one of the driveways across the street from kind of where uh, Fortell's Pizza is on North Kirkwood Road today. Uh, and he's shooting his radar gun. Now, my dad was a cop in Kirkwood at the time, and I, it wasn't my dad. I knew that. He was a detective. But we drive past this guy, and I see a car coming down Kirkwood Road the other way, and it's really coming down the road fast. It's about 1030 at night. And so I flick my lights. You know, you flick them to warn them that there's a cop down the road, right? Well, the police car whips out of the parking lot, but he isn't chasing the car going the other way. He's coming after me. <laughs> he pulls me over. He says, give me your, give me your driver's license. I can hand him my driver's license. He looks at my driver's license. I got a flashlight. He looks at it and he goes, oh, you're Cappy's boy. <laughs> I'm like, yes, sir. He goes, I'll tell your dad about this little incident, young man. And I'm like, could you just instead take me to jail? I mean, cuff me now. <laughs> can I, you know, can I just pay the fine, whatever, take me in, beat me with a rubber hose? I don't care. Just don't tell my dad that I did this. You know, knowing that, that your dad's an all-powerful kind of guy isn't always the most reassuring information that you can get. And Jacob sees this image of God, and, and, he, and he sees the glory and the majesty And if he doesn't hear the message, if he doesn't understand the grace with which God speaks, this is going to be a much more alarming encounter than a reassuring encounter. And I asked you before, I mentioned before, you know, God saw everything we did this week. He he noticed the lie that you told to your spouse. He saw the websites that we were surfing through this week. He saw when we cheated on that test in math, third hour on Thursday morning. Now, if that really happened to you, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? The guy just revealed that to you like that. I just picked that out of, out of thin air. But point being this, if God isn't gracious, you and I are in serious trouble. If God's reaction is simply based on his power and his ability to correct the wrongs that we have created, that Jacob created in his family, then we're hopelessly lost. But God appears in grace. He doesn't reproach. He says, Jacob... The promise is still intact. I am a gracious God. I'm a merciful God. Now, knowing that God's attitude is such, the question shifts now. A moment ago, I said, the big question is, how is God going to react to this conniver and this cheat? Now we've observed that that part of the conversation, God is being gracious. The question now shifts to how is Jacob going to react? Because that's the question you and I have to answer this morning. It's not just how is Jacob going to react, but how are you going to react? How am I going to react to the grace and the mercy that God passes on to us? Jacob has three reactions. Look at verses 16 uh, and 17. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. 
And this is the gate of heaven. Jacob's first reaction is what I'm going to call a realization. He wakes up and he says, oh my goodness, I, I didn't know where I was. He is amazed at this experience he has just had. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. That's not, he didn't say, well, surely this place is where the Lord, I didn't know it. Jacob is, is startled. He is astonished. If there was anybody around, they probably heard this guy shouting, hey, did, did anybody else around here know this is a place where God dwells? Jacob is overwhelmed. He is, he is shocked by this revelation. He is, uh, he's realizing something he never knew before. But what else does it say? And he was afraid. Uh, the, the term used uh, when, uh, when the U.S. went to war for the second time in Iraq was shock and awe. <laughs> and that's what Jacob experiences. He's shocked by the fact that he's seen this vision of heaven and he is in reverential awe of God. And, and he is, in a sense, uh, fearful of this, this place, of this encounter. It may be that, that he so was engrossed in the vision that he didn't necessarily hear all the words. Maybe it was still sinking in. Maybe he was still kind of, kind of working through and processing all that he's seen and he's heard, but he has a reaction of fear. And I, and I want to suggest to you that this is actually a great response. Uh, and I think there is a, there's a fine line we walk between saying, you know, you don't have to be afraid of God. God is compassionate. And yet at the same time, it is very appropriate to fear God in the right way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. There is a reverential fear that is absolutely more than appropriate when we come face to face with the God of the universe. If God doesn't startle you a little bit, if there isn't a reverential fear in your life, I think your worship is going to be stunted. I think if I don't understand that that the right response for me is to bow before God, He is God and I am not. You know, we were singing um, the, the song earlier, uh, Better's One Day in His Courts Than a Thousand Elsewhere. And I just was kind of, you know, singing that with y'all and thinking about it and, and kind of praying through it as we were singing. I was thinking, what would it be like for me to actually have the next 24 hours in heaven, just to go there and to see it and to experience it in all of its glory and all of its majesty? And I had two reactions. One is I started to tear up a little bit like I am now because it was like, wow, wouldn't that be cool? But the other thought was, I think I'd hide in the corner. <laughs> I think I tried it to, to go unnoticed because I, the, the shame I feel, the fear that I, that I feel and that I've offended a holy and a righteous God, I don't think that's a bad thought. I think if it's the only thought, it can lead to a bad theology. But I don't think in and of itself it's a bad thought. I actually think it's the most fundamental thought you can have when you come to worship. I think it's the foundation for worship. And I like the fact that we're pretty casual and laid back here. I, I like the fact you can go to Starbucks and bring your coffee and get some donuts in between. I love that. I like the fact that we're in a brightly lit room and not in a, in a dark shrouded room. But I think sometimes we can get a little too casual. Let me put it this way. I think sometimes I can get a little too casual. I can get a little too, yeah, it's just kind of what we do is go to the bulldog cafeteria and, and worship God. And I think sometimes it would be better if I just kind of fell on my face and understood that the place where we stand on Sunday morning is it's holy ground. So we come into God's presence. 
Well, Jacob's first reaction is this, is this realization. And I think it's a great reaction. Uh, look at verses 18 and 19, his second reaction. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Now, probably what Jacob did, probably the way this worked is he got a whole bunch of rocks uh, and he piled them up till they were at a certain height. And he probably took that, that last rock and kind of made it the, the capstone, the top stone, the one that would, that would sit on the top. But in some way, uh, what Jacob does is he creates a monument. And, and my, and his second response, I'm saying, is identification. <laughs> Jacob's identifying that something significant here, that his eyes have been opened and he marks the spot. He piles up these rocks. He, he puts the, the pillow rock on the top. Because it points to a significant spiritual experience in his life. Uh, we sing the hymn occasionally, uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And one of the lines in that, in that song is, Here I raise my Ebenezer, right? Hither by thy grace I come. And Ebenezer is a pile of rocks. It's a nice fancy word. It wasn't originally Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> Ebenezer is simply a, a monument. It's, it's a pile of rocks that point to something significant that's happened because it's an ongoing reminder of that event. So Jacob says, I don't want to forget what's happened. I don't want to lose this. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to go on my journey and I might forget and I might come back from years from now and I might go, was it over there? Was it over there? So I got to make sure that I mark this spot. And Jacob raises uh, his Ebenezer so that he will remember the spiritual interaction that's happened with, uh, that's happened with God. I have a variety of different things on my desk. But I want to show you two things I have on my desk because uh, they're part of my uh, life's Ebenezer. The first one, you can't really see it. It's just this little clay square. And, and some of you may still have your little clay square. When we were at Green Tree early on, and I started at Green Tree in, the, in 1999, it was our second or third year. We had this really dilapidated little cross. Anybody remember that little cross we had? It was about that tall, and it like fell over almost every Sunday. But uh, what we did was we took a bunch of glue and everybody came forward once and I think it was a communion Sunday and we took communion and then each one of us picked up a little little clay piece and uh, and it reminded us, we took one and we put it on the cross and we glued it to the cross and we took one and we took it home with us to remind us that we were a community, that we were a spiritual family. Uh, and so this Ebenezer reminds me that I belong to you, that I'm part of Green Tree Community Church. And it reminds me that I, that I have a great privilege and I have a great responsibility. And so I look at this every day. That's part of my uh, spiritual journey at Green Tree. It's part of my Ebenezer. The other thing I have on my desk by way of Ebenezer is this long spike. It's, I don't know, probably about three inches long. It's just a very simple kind of kind of spike. And uh, one year for communion, and this is probably going back six or seven years, we were still over at Steger on Good Friday, and we had a, a cross beam in the front. And when we came up to took communion, we picked up a hammer, and we took a spike, and we nailed it into the cross to symbolize the fact that it was our sin that put Christ on the cross, but it also reminded us that we were in Jesus, that we belonged to him, that not only do we belong to one another at Green Tree, but that we belong to Christ. And I remember two things about that night. The first thing I remember was really dark, and the first time I swung the hammer, I hit my thumb. That's the, that's the first thing I remember. The second thing I remember is um, the power of that experience. And knowing that, not just that it was my sin that nailed Christ to the cross, but that he did that for me and that I really did belong to him. And so I look at this to remind myself every day that I belong to Jesus. And I look at this to remind myself every day that I belong to Green Tree Community Church. And so I love the fact that Isaac uh, or that Jacob built an Ebenezer. I think that's a great 
practical thing to do, and I would encourage you to find your Ebenezers as you go through life and hang on to them and create that monument that speaks to God's faithfulness, that speaks to God's mercy, and that speaks to God's compassion. So I think this first reaction of realization, I think the second re, uh, reaction of identification are both great. I think Jacob starts off in a wonderful way, but there's one more uh, reaction we want to look at real quickly. And uh, where'd it go to? It just kind of wandered off. I'll read it for you. Uh, in verses 20 through 22, here's Jacob's response to, uh, to what God has said. Uh, Jacob says, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up of her pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I shall give a full tenth to you. The, the last reaction, the third reaction, is the reaction of negotiation. Uh, I want to go to the next screen for just a second. And I want you to, to I want to pick these things out pretty clearly. Jacob's response. If God will be with me, so that I come again to my father's house. Then the Lord shall be my God. He started out so well, and he, and he slips so badly here. God says, I'm going to be with you wherever you go. I'm going to bring you back to this land. It's all going to belong to you. He, he utters the exact same promise he's given to Abraham, the exact same promise he's given to Isaac. He, he, he meets Jacob at his moment of sin and his moment of brokenness. He says, I'm going to restore all of this. And Jacob kind of bows down to worship. He builds his Ebenezer. And then he says, you know what? I'm not so sure about this. I'm not exactly positive. If God will be with me, then he will be my God. And I think what's happening here is that a cheater is worried about being cheated. I think he assumes something about the character of God that's absolutely flawed. He looks at God through a sinful and broken lens. God, you're amazing. I I bow down before you. God, I'll remember this day the rest of my life. I'm even going to make this monument so I don't forget. And by the way, God, can I really trust you? (laughs) You know, I know what I do with people. I make promises to them all the time. I never intend to keep them. I say things in negotiations in order to make sure that I come out on top. God, maybe that's what you're doing. And Jacob is like he's taking two steps forward and now one giant step back. I think this conversation tells us a great deal if we'll take the time to look. I think this conversation reminds us that God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. He is the Lord of the ladder, so to speak. The angels are doing his bidding that he is merciful in dealing with sinners. He's going to be very patient with Jacob. Jacob is not going to come to this conclusion, then the Lord shall be my God. It's going to be at least 20 years before Jacob comes to that realization and only after God wrestles him to the ground and dislocates one of his joints. And we'll come to that in a, in a few weeks. We'll come, we'll come to that wrestling match in a few weeks. But God comes in mercy and he comes in compassion. And he comes saying, I'm going to fulfill my will. You can trust me. You don't have to worry about that. But this conversation also tells us that our lens is skewed, (laughs) that there's something wrong with the way we look at God when we leave faith out of the the equation. Jacob has a worshipful response right up until the personal application, (laughs) right up until it's as if God, God, God gives him this promise, and then it's almost as if God is saying, so now, Jacob, will you trust me? 
Jacob, will you believe me? Because that trust in God has an impact on the way in which you live your life. That faith is very, very practical. Or it really isn't faith at all. The moments that you didn't see this week where I, where I blew it, those were moments when I stopped practicing my faith. Those were moments when I rejected the promise that God gave to Jacob in the same way that Jacob questioned it on that night. You see, friends, God is saying to us this morning as a, as a people, as a church, as a spiritual family, as well as as individuals, my promise is true today. It's been seen now and expanded now through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my doubt of God is actually worse sin than Jacob's. Jacob didn't even know the name of Jesus yet. He just knew that God had made a promise. I can look back through the lens of the New Testament and through my life's experience and through 2,000 years of church history and still fail to trust, (laughs) still fail to believe. I think this conversation (laughs) ought to encourage us (laughs) in God's faithfulness and ought to challenge us to reexamine our reaction to God's promises. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your unmitigated faithfulness and grace to Jacob. Father, I thank you that as he's fleeing for his life because he's a liar and a thief and a cheat, you still meet him and you still offer grace. But Father, that's a great thing. Because starting with the people who stand on the stage to every corner of this room, this room is filled with the same kind of people. (laughs) We might dress it up nicer. We might behave a little more appropriately. Might not be quite as uh, out, out there like it was with Jacob who just flat out cheated and robbed his brother. But Lord, there's plenty of sin in our hearts. There's plenty of sin in my heart. So Father, I pray this morning as we observe this conversation that it wouldn't just be from a safe distance, but rather we'd get up close and personal with it. And we would ask you to examine our hearts once again this morning. Father, show us our lack of faith, not so that that we feel shame and and guilt and slink out of here uh, thinking that we just barely got by on the skin of our teeth, but rather so that we would embrace once again the cross of Jesus Christ and the fullness of his mercy and that we would be reminded that we can live by faith this week, that those moments where we failed last week, we can, we can turn those around by your grace and in your power, we can be a people of faith that worship you not only when we gather here on Sunday morning, but that we would see the house of God everywhere we go this week. 